Well, it is good to be with you again. Uh, my name is Tim Geiger, for those of you who don't know me, and uh, I preach here once or twice a month. I've been doing that uh, for uh, over a year, and so uh, it is good to be with you uh, again on this occasion to bring the Lord's Word to you. We are going through the book of Judges, which is in the Old Testament, and it is a historical book which tells us about an interim period between uh, the time when God's people settled the land that he had given them through his promise and the time when uh, a king was raised up to rule over them. And today, we're going to be looking at the story of a man named Abimelech, who I said earlier in the, the service, is a man who declared himself king. He, he thought that he should reign over God's people because he had uh, something special to offer to them. Uh, and uh, what a pity that God didn't share his high opinion of himself. But uh, we will uh, read excerpts from the story of Abimelech. Um, as you will see in the, in the bulletin, we're going to be skipping some verses uh, just because it is such a long passage. Um, but I hope you will follow along with me as we read. We're going to start in Judges chapter 9, verse 1. And that is on page 208 in your pew Bibles. Here is God's word. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in, in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and they, in their hearts, inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of baal Berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house in Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And then skipping down to verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubbabel might come, and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. And then skipping down finally to verse 50. Then Abimelech, went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, 
Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, um, this is a hard story to fathom, uh, and it is confusing to read through and to try to figure out where you are in it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, guide the thoughts of our hearts, that you would guide the words of my mouth as I preach on this passage. Lord, if there is anything that uh, I have uh, decided to say but I'm not supposed to, Lord, would you please uh, just prevent me from saying it. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would write your word on our hearts that this wouldn't just be a historical uh, exercise in remembering something that happened many centuries ago, but rather that we would realize that all Scripture is uh, living and breathed out by your Spirit into our hearts, that we would know you better and love you more. And so we commit this time to you and pray that you will glorify yourself in it. All this we ask in Jesus' name. So, this will be ancient history for most of us, but, or I should say for all of us, I don't think there's anyone here uh, who remembers the year 1888. <laughs> Is there? No, no. My, my uh, biggest touch point with the year 1888 is I, I'm a minor numismatist. Uh, does anyone know what that is? Coins. Coins. I, I collect coins. Uh, and the oldest coin I have is a silver dollar from 1888, and it's in pretty good shape. Um, but that's kind of a useless fact. <laughs> that draws us to uh, the opening illustration for this morning, and that is back in 1888, uh, there was an author named Rudyard Kipling who wrote a story called The Man Who Would Be King. Uh, and in this story, you might be familiar with it, but in it, two British men whose names are Daniel and Peachy scheme to convince tribal leaders in a northern Afghanistan um, uh, region that they are immortal and that they should rule over the, the people of Afghanistan as kings. And so the ruse works for a while, but as with all lies, it, it falls apart and Daniel and Peachy are discovered to be just ordinary men. And so the people turn against them and they're sentenced to death. And Daniel dies at the hands of his former subjects. Uh, and the story is called The Man Who Would Be King, singular, instead of men, because the second man, Peachy, barely escapes with his life. Uh, and he doesn't just escape with his life, but he escapes with the severed head of Daniel still wearing his crown. Um, and he makes his way back to India, where uh, Rudyard Kipling uh, is living. Rudyard Kipling is the, the narrator in the story. And so uh, Peachy takes a year to make it back to India. And by the time he finds Rudyard Kipling, he is he's a, 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 a poor beggar. 
his shoes have worn off, his clothes are in tatters, uh, he's malnourished, and he is literally out of his mind. He, he's so out of his mind that in the story, uh, after he, he spills everything that happened to Rudyard Kipling, Rudyard Kipling takes him to a sanitarium. So he's, he's completely humbled in every way possible. And yet he, he brings with him as evidence of what happened, the this, this severed head of his friend still wearing a crown. And he talks about how for a moment he was a king and how he enjoyed uh, life on the top. And so these are two men, Daniel and Peachy, who were utterly convinced that they deserved to be in power, that they deserved to be worshipped, that they deserved to be served because they were more cunning, they were more clever than the people uh, of whom they took advantage. And in a sense, that's the simplified summary version of the brief and troubled reign of Abimelech, who is Israel's first king. He believed that he deserved to reign over the people of Israel and stopped at nothing, not even the lives of 69 of his 70 brothers to get what he wanted. Abimelech was Israel's first king, though he didn't preside over what we would call a unified nation. It would be more appropriate to say that he was more of a regional ruler, and as we'll see, he wasn't a very popular one at that. And so we're going to look at the story of Abimelech in Judges using three points, uh, which are not on the handout in your bulletin. The first point is he made himself king. The second is he was a very bad king. And the third is he makes us want the ultimate king. So he made himself king, he was a very bad king, and he makes us want the ultimate king. So the first point. Everyone has a backstory. And some backstories are more colorful and more prescient than others. So uh, in addition to being a numismatist, I'm a bit of a, an American historian, and my favorite president uh, to go back and, and read and learn about is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was the 32nd president of the United States. And around the turn of the last century, in the, the very early part of the first uh, decade of the 1900s, he was a young man in college, and he deeply admired his older cousin. Does anyone remember who? Theodore Roosevelt, right, who in 1901 became president of the United States because uh, the president, William McKinley, uh, was assassinated. So Theodore Roosevelt, his, his cousin, was then the 26th president of the country. And so Franklin, today we would almost call it stalking, uh, what, what Franklin did with, uh, with Theodore. He copied the mannerisms of Theodore down to the T. He tried to speak like him. He tried to use his inflections. He tried to use the grandiose, uh, bombastic language that Theodore Roosevelt was accustomed to using. He even, he even wore these very unusual eyeglasses that Theodore Roosevelt wore, uh, called pince-nez. And they, they were French, uh, glasses of French design, which didn't have earpieces uh, like mine do, but they had a nose clip. And they just used to sit on your nose, and you could they were on a chain, you could take them off, put them back on. Uh, but, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, a young man, 
wore something that was uh, very unusual for American culture and uh, certainly not usual for someone of his age, uh, just to look and act like his older cousin Teddy. But beyond that, in a very uncanny fashion, he also fashioned his political career to look like his cousin Teddy's. First, he became a New York assemblyman, and then assistant secretary of the Navy, and then New York governor. He also ran in 1920 uh, as the Democratic vice presidential nominee alongside James Cox. And he didn't win, and that's the one elected office he didn't share with his elder cousin. But in every other way, they, they had the same offices in state and national uh, office, and they, they had very, very similar careers. And it's all because Franklin wanted to be just like his older cousin. In many, many other ways, regardless of what you may think about his politics, Franklin set himself up to be president. And in fact, he was elected to four consecutive terms in that office. In a sense, he made himself king. Like Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Abimelech, the, the ruler that we learn about in today's passage from Judges, is entirely a self-made ruler. As a matter of fact, Abimelech was probably more like a modern-day politician than an Old Testament king. If you look back uh, at his backstory, uh, back in chapter 8, verse 22 of Judges, the, the men of Israel asked the judge Gideon, who is... Uh, Abimelech's father. You, you might be a little confused about that because you have this strange name, Jerubbabel, uh, which is used to refer to Gideon starting in chapter 9. Uh, and Jerubbabel was actually a name that was given to Gideon years earlier uh, when he had torn down the altar to Baal uh, in his father's, on his father's property. Uh, and Jerubbabel means he contends against Baal. So what it means literally is this guy fights against Baal. Uh, and for whatever reason, uh, the writer of Judges in chapter 9 switched uh, to that name to refer to Gideon, but Jerubbabel and Gideon are the same, same man. At any rate, any rate uh, the men of Israel asked Gideon back in chapter 8 um, to rule over them. And, and they were actually asking him to become a king, and not only to be a king, but to start a dynasty. Because they say uh, to Gideon, uh, not only you, but would your son and grandson rule over us as well? So there's something about Gideon back at the end of chapter 8, back near the end of his life, during the end of the time that he was judging Israel, that made the people want to follow him and to invest in his family because they were convinced that his sons and grandsons would be just the same kind of ruler that he was. And so in chapter 8, verse 23, Gideon gives the, the correct and the godly response. You get to have to give props to, to Gideon for saying this. He says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. For Gideon, that was the correct answer. After all, Gideon was a, a, a judge he wasn't called by the, by the Lord to be king. Those offices are very different and very distinct from each other. And up to this point, there had been no king in Israel. There would be a king, but the Lord's will 
was that Israel would not have a king just now. However, as we look through the remainder of chapter 8 and move into chapter 9, we see that Gideon was on a bit of a slippery slope. The temptation of kingship must have been a kind of snare to Gideon because he begins to do some very kingly kinds of things as we uh, move toward the end of chapter 8. For example, and, and you can look uh, at this for yourselves, um, it starts in verse 24 of chapter 8. Gideon acquires for himself a large amount of gold from the people of Israel. And it says that in verse 26, uh, the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. And so that 1,700 shekels of gold comes out to be a little over 41 pounds, which today would be worth a little over $1.1 million. So, you know, that's not a small amount of gold. And yet, uh, there's no reason for Gideon to have done this except that he would want to make himself maybe the richest man in Israel. In chapter 8, verse 26, we uh, read that he also collects the kingly ornaments and clothing of the kings of Midian, whom he had defeated. And so he's acquiring for himself not only a wardrobe to go along with his newfound wealth, but he's acquiring the bling to go on his own camels and donkeys that would tell other people, hey, I'm, I'm different than you, I'm better than you, I have stuff you don't have. As an aside... Gideon uses some of the gold that he gets to make an ephod, which uh, it's another strange word, but an ephod is a sleeveless garment that uh, only the high priest wore. Uh, and there was only supposed to be one ephod. Uh, and the reason there was only supposed to be one ephod because, was because there was only one person who represented the people to God. That was the high priest. Uh, the ephod was something which was used to divine God's will. And so people would, in, in a sense, uh, consult the high priest while he was wearing the ephod to find out what God's will was for the people. And so Gideon sinned in creating this, this ephod, which was not the original ephod set aside for God's people. And it says uh, in verse 27, that the ephod became a snare to Gideon and his family, and that the people of Israel eventually began worshiping it. And so we read that Gideon is, again, on this slippery slope, and there's more and more that's happening uh, in order to drag him downhill. In verse 30, we read that Gideon acquires for himself many wives and concubines, so many, in fact, that he had 70 sons. And I assume a good number of daughters, unless um, he was very unlucky. Um, <laughs> because daughters are good, I have one. As another aside, having multiple wives was also something that sinful uh, Gideon did. God's design, after all, is for a marriage between one husband and one wife. But having multiple wives was not only sinful, but it was something that kings were notorious for doing. It's a way that they maintained their power and uh, had some public show of, of prestige. So all of this is building up to what we see in chapter 8, verse 31, that as 
kind of the smoking gun that reveals Gideon's kingly lusts. We see that Gideon names uh, a son born to one of his concubines, Abimelech. And you might wonder what the big deal is with that. Well, Abimelech, just like many other names in the Old Testament and, and throughout Scripture, has a meaning. And Abimelech in Hebrew means, my father is king. So, what more proof do we need that Gideon wanted to be considered a king than he would name his son, hey, guess what? My dad is the king. Um, and that's because, at least in his own heart, Gideon considered himself to be a king, even though he didn't uh, call himself that directly. So wrapping up the final years of Gideon and ga uh, gauging, rather, the impact that they had on his family and on the people of Israel, I think Gideon's struggle with self-esteem, which we see very early on in his story, uh, turned into a bit of megalomania. And where we might have said back in Judges 6, which was the beginning of Gideon's story, that he thought too little of himself, he seems to be on a bit of an ego trip by the end of chapter 8, living the lifestyle of the rich, the powerful, and the famous. And his son Abimelech seems to suffer from the same pride that his father did. So moving on to Abimelech, in chapter 9, verse 1, the first thing that we read about him is that he goes to Shechem, his mother's hometown, and he does some serious politicking. He, he's, he's on a campaign. He asks his relatives to influence the leaders of Shechem to back his power play and take control of Israel. And why did he go to his mother's family? It's because Abimelech, despite uh, his uh, name, he had no authority. He had no hope for power. Not only were there 70, uh, 69 other sons of uh, Gideon that he was competing with for power, but because uh, in Israel, your, um, uh, your reputation, your, your bloodline came through your mother. Gideon didn't have a share in the inheritance of all of the other sons. Even though his father thought himself to be a king, Abimelech would not stand to inherit any of that. And so he believes the only way he's going to have power is to gin it up for himself. And so uh, he believes that his family doing uh, that politicking for him with the, the leaders of Shechem can create enough of a power play that he can take control of Israel. In order to do that, Abimelech believes that he needs to get rid of his 70 brothers who would presumably challenge his bid for power. And after all, if Gideon fancied himself a king, wouldn't his kingdom fall to the eldest of his sons first. And we know that Abimelech uh, was far from the eldest. Abimelech, the good politician that he is, feels the need to eliminate his competition before he can comfortably take power. And so we read that Abimelech's backers, the leaders of Shechem, give Abimelech 70 pieces of silver to kill off his brothers. The kind of the little twist of where that money came from uh, was it came from the treasury of the house of this god by the name of uh, Baal-berith. Baal-berith 
was the God that the people of Israel had decided to worship at that time. Uh, and so it's kind of ironic that uh, here are the leaders of Shechem raiding the church treasury of uh, this illegitimate God in order for Abimelech to go and dispense with his brothers and sisters. Honestly, when, when you step back and look at this, Abimelech was way ahead of his time because this is something that we would expect to see a politician do in the 21st century. Abimelech is a self-made man with powerful backers and public support. And I'm sure if there had been reality TV and social media at the time, he would have been the king of all of that. In addition to the fact that he murdered 69 of his brothers, there's one small problem with Abimelech's ascent to power. And that is, Abimelech was a completely illegitimate king. And he wasn't illegitimate because he was the son of a concubine. He was illegitimate because of what God said about the qualifications to be a king. You see, the people of Israel didn't just think up the notion of having a king over them. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I'm sorry, 17, verse 15, which was given to the people of Israel about 200 years before the incidents uh, that we read about today. The Lord says that Israel may set a king over them, but that this king has to be a man whom the Lord God himself will choose. The Lord God himself has to choose the man to be the king over the people of Israel. And so you see that... When, when you look at all of the legitimate kings of Israel, Saul and David and Solomon and so on, you see that uh, a prophet or a priest goes to, to do what before each man is crowned king? They're anointed, right? And that anointing with oil by a representative of God is the, the, the physical mark that says, this is the man that I have chosen to rule over my people. But Abimelech conveniently uh, forgets that, uh, that little qualification. God didn't choose him to be king. He didn't ask Abimelech to eliminate all of his brothers to clear his way to power. He didn't ask Abimelech to run a campaign to sell his reputation uh, and power to the rulers of Shechem. God did not want Abimelech to be ruler over his people. The rulers of Shechem should have known that as well, but they they conveniently dismissed it. After all, we're told at the end of chapter 8 that the people of Israel had, by this point, turned away from God and were worshiping this idol named Baal Barith. Baal Barith, again, is, an, is a, a name that has a meaning. It means Lord of the Covenant. Strange, ironic, if you will, because uh, the, the true God had made a covenant with his people, so the, the true God is actually the God of the covenant, but the people decided to make a covenant with this other God whom they made up uh, because they thought it would be to their advantage. And so the modern aphorism, you get the leaders you deserve, seems to apply to Abimelech and the people of Israel as well. They had turned away from God and they had embraced a God who they thought would give them what they wanted. And before we move on to the next point, let me say a couple of things about the 
the core issue that Abimelech is struggling with, and that's pride. Looking back at what we first learned about Gideon in chapter 6, we assume that Gideon doesn't struggle with pride. After all, what do we see about him? He, he's someone who seems to be lacking in self-confidence. He tells the angel of the Lord that he's too unimportant to be used by the Lord, and then on at least three occasions, he doubts God's direct revelation to him. He keeps saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not the right one. And so we think that Gideon doesn't struggle with pride. But a chronic lack of self-confidence is pride. It's just pride turned inward. Abimelech's pride is manifested in the typical ways that we see of arrogance and of self-importance, but his father Gideon's pride came out as chronic self-doubt. Abimelech's pride said, look how important my reputation is. Everyone has to see the great things that I'm doing and praise me for them. Whereas Gideon's pride said, look at how important my reputation is. No one must see me do anything lest I make a mistake and then people criticize me for it. Neither of these manifestations of pride is better than the other. They both precede bad consequences. And that's what the writer of Proverbs warns us against in Proverbs 16, 19, where he tells us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Abimelech. But before we move on and continue talking about the events of Abimelech, I'd like you to just consider about what I said about pride. Where do you struggle with pride in your own life? Do you struggle with pride in the typical ways of being boastful and controlling, or do you struggle with being too reserved and wanting to hide yourself from other people because you're afraid that if other people see that you're human and make mistakes, that they won't love you anymore? So moving on to point two, Abimelech was a very bad king. And I would offer to you that most kingdoms that begin by turning from God and committing mass murder don't turn out very well. I would encourage you to think of Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, which have similar backstories. And that is the case with Abimelech. In, in chapter 9, verse 22, we learn that Abimelech ruled for only three years. And those three years were years that seemed to have been full of nothing but conflict. And why is that? It's because any power built on pride, selfishness, and deceit is doomed to failure by virtue of its own merits. But there was an additional source of conflict in Abimelech's reign. Verses 23 and 24 tell us what that source of conflict was and why it was. Let me go back and read it for you uh, again. This is chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubbabel might come, and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And so here we read that God himself sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. We don't know the, the details of what that evil spirit was all about, but, but the writer of Judges makes it clear that God's intent was that the violence Abimelech 
had perpetrated on his brothers would return to him and to the leaders of Shechem who supported him in it. The remainder of chapter 9 tells us about how Abimelech's reign quickly plunges all the surrounding area into chaos and how many, many more lives are lost as the direct result of Abimelech's sin. First, the leaders of Shechem turn against Abimelech, and then Abimelech turns against the whole city and completely destroys it. In in chapter 9, verse 45, we read that Abimelech raised the city and sowed it with salt. And this isn't some some city that's far off. This is this this is this is Abimelech's power base. This is Shechem. This is where his family lived, and this is where all of the leaders who believed in him just months before lived. He completely and utterly destroys the city, and uh, sowing it with salt is a way to make the ground unable to support any kind of uh, cultivation. Uh, for generations. He's he's making the city uninhabitable. He wants people to remember, hey, I'm the one who destroyed this city and it's not coming back on my watch. But then he goes on to attack another town called Thebes, a few miles northeast of Shechem. And we don't know why he attacked Thebes, but we can surmise. We know that Abimelech was prideful and that his pride motivated him to secure his own power through violence and intimidation. One commentator speculates that because of how Abimelech's reign came about, he had to enforce his rule over Israel more like a warlord than a king who represented the reign of God to his people. And so Abimelech had to had to use force over and over and over again to subdue the people of Israel to make them obey him. Whatever the reason for besieging and attacking Thebes, Abimelech does it. And then in chapter 9, verse 52, we learn that Abimelech is getting ready to murder the remaining people of Thebes as he did to the people of Shechem by setting fire to the strong tower where they had all run for safety. And then what happens? Here's another twist in the story. In chapter 9, verse 53, 53 rather, we read, A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. But even that, uh, even to the end rather, Abimelech was prideful. He tells his armor bearer to finish him off because he can't stand to die with the indignity of being killed by a woman. And I just wonder if Abimelech isn't thinking back even in that, those last minutes of his life uh, to what happened a couple of generations earlier with a woman that we read about two weeks ago named Jael, who uh, destroyed her, um, uh, the the enemy of her people, with a tent peg while he was sleeping. And another irony uh, that that you just can't escape with this is that here is a woman throwing a, a stone probably the size of a bowling ball, probably weighed about eight to 10 pounds, down and crushing the skull of the enemy of God's people. What what does that remind you of? If you go back to to Genesis 3, how does God himself prophesy that uh, evil will be destroyed, that, that Satan will be crushed? It said that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so, uh, probably not with too much irony, 
this is how Abimelech, who would seek to, to raise himself up and to point people away from God, is destroyed uh, under God's justice. So something really strange happens as soon as Abimelech is dead. We read in the, the final verses of uh, our passage today that upon his death, the rampage suddenly ends. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie The Wizard of Oz, but when in the, the climactic scene where Dorothy throws water on the, the Wicked Witch of the West and she, she melts, suddenly all of her horde of uh, servants who are trying to kill Dorothy and her friends are freed from this evil spell. And they send Dorothy and her friends off on their way to see the wizard. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, instead of trying to kill them as they had done moments before, suddenly they depart in peace. And that's it's kind of what we see happen here. That as soon as Abimelech is dead, scripture records that they all just went home. Kind of like an evil spell cast over them had been broken. I, I wonder what the people in the in the Tower of Thebes were thinking when they just see everyone who tr was trying to murder them moments earlier just walk away. The entire brief reign of Abimelech came to an abrupt end, concluding just as it had begun, with bloodshed and with an unabashed prideful lust for power. For the man who would be king, he left such an impression that the people of Israel were content to live without a king for another two centuries. So the third point, Abimelech makes us want the ultimate king. Now, you and I have the advantage of Monday morning quarterbacking the reign of Abimelech over Israel. To at least some of the people of Abimelech's time, having him rule over them must have seemed like a good idea because they went along with it. Remember, he first convinced his family and then his family convinced the rulers of Shechem that he was the man for the job, that he was the right man to lead Israel. But in retrospect, we know that he wasn't. Abimelech was only after his own interests, and he sought after only his own glory. As a matter of fact, there's no man or woman who's up to the job of leading God's people well. Each of the earthly kings that God raised up had fatal flaws from Saul all the way down to Zechariah. And in general, just like in the book of Judges, uh, the kings of Israel and Judah grew worse and worse from one generation to the next. As you, as you walk through uh, the books of First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, which is uh, a, a retelling of the stories of, of the kings, you see that one king to the next generally is presiding just over a weaker and weaker and weaker nation of the people of God. And the kings themselves become more and more apostate. And as a matter of fact, the final chapter of the book of Second Chronicles tells us that because of their persistent straying from him in the midst of his grace, the wrath of God grew greater and greater against his people until there was no remedy against it. But there is one remedy that we know about today. And that is the ultimate remedy. God loves his people so much that he raised up one final king, the ultimate king, 
to rule over his people perfectly and for all time. God had made a covenant with King David centuries before that there would be one of David's descendants whose kingdom would never end. And that ultimate king is Jesus, God's own son. Unlike Abimelech, Jesus wasn't motivated by pride. He was motivated by love and mercy. Unlike Abimelech, Jesus didn't pursue personal revenge. Rather, he pursues righteousness and God's glory. Unlike Abimelech, Jesus doesn't need to campaign to get your vote. If you love him, it's because you've already been saved and he's already made you his own because he loved you first. That's what scripture tells us. In Jesus and in Jesus alone is our hope for salvation and our hope for the future. Abimelech was an abysmal leader who looked out only for his own interests. And I'm Sorry to say that every human leader has similar weak points. We're all sinners equally in need of grace. And even as we celebrate Independence Day this weekend, I would encourage you to not fall into the trap of believing that any human leader will be the salvation of this country or of God's people. To a greater or lesser extent, all leaders have Abimelech's fatal flaws. Remember that those whose sins have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, belong now to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the one who delivered us. And his kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. It's not a kingdom of flesh, but a kingdom of faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that all the faithful men and women named there hoped in faith not for their their salvation through an earthly kingdom, but through Christ's kingdom even though they couldn't see it at the time. Hebrews 11.16 says this, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared for them a city. And in Hebrews 13.14, the writer of Hebrews tells us, For here we have no lasting city. Here on earth is no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. So let's be thankful to the Lord for this country and let's pray that the Lord would make it the best country possible. Let's be thankful to the Lord for his provision to us and let's pray that it would continue. Let's support and elect men and women who truly love the Lord to leadership in this country. But let's not see this country or any earthly country as our hope. The reality is the only way that we can be good citizens of this kingdom the United States, is to be good kingdoms of Jesus' kingdom. If we belong to Jesus, we belong to that ultimate kingdom that is ruled over by the ultimate king. Let's increasingly enjoy our citizenship in his kingdom, and let's pray for hearts and minds willing to follow the leading of his spirit. Please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful to you for this country. We pray that you would preserve us from leaders like Abimelech who are interested only in their own glory. Lord, I pray that you would make us men and women who are content, first and foremost, to be citizens of heaven and to know that the city that you are preparing for us there is our true home. Lord, help us to desire to find ourselves more and more uh, 
just more and more in line with uh, who we are called to be. Give us an increasing desire, Lord, to be with you in your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that that would make us love uh, the people in this kingdom more and would help us to be better representatives of you here. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.